Hello everybody, Jordan Skinner here and welcome to another episode of the Crushing It in Construction podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to the construction industry where I interview amazing guests from within the industry that share their experience, their wisdom and their insights that'll help you, the listener, either grow within your career or grow within your business. So no matter where you are in this industry, there is always something valuable to learn from our guests and their stories. Now, this week, we've got a little bit of a different episode. I've got a mate of mine called Brian Furness coming on the show. He's from the US. He's also the host of Sweat and Grime, a podcast over there that is dedicated to the construction industry, much like mine. And I wanted to get him on the show because this year, Con Ag Expo was on. I couldn't make it. And I want to get Brian on because he was at the event. He experienced it firsthand. And I just wanted to get him on the show to kind of act a bit like a reporter in the field and tell us all the cool things that we missed out on what the hot goss was, what the big unveils were from the event, and just generally fill us in. So it's a great episode. We talk about a a whole heap of different stuff, but let's get into it. So, Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast, mate. We have been trying to organize this for, Christ, I don't know. Long time. If it's not 12 months, it's at least eight months. We had to build that anticipation. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's it. For everybody that doesn't know who you are, what it is that you do, where you're from, could you just fill us in? Yeah, so my name is Brian Furness. I am from Michigan in the U.S. I'm a dirt contractor, but then I've also got a YouTube channel called Diesel and Iron that is geared towards getting people into the dirt industry and teaching them kind of basic skills and then slowly advancing them in their skill set. And then we also have two podcasts that we do. We have the first one, which is Sweat and Grime. It's really geared towards people in the trades. The whole idea is create an entertaining platform For people that are sitting in their cab trying to get through the day, we give them some entertainment. Episodes run about an hour and a half to two hours long. So really, it's long form entertainment. And then we have another platform that is the Blue Collar Narrative. And that is relatively new. They run about 45 minutes a piece. And the whole idea there is try to get information out to kids about the trades that they're not getting in school. You know, how do you get into the trade? What do you expect to earn? What's a day in the life like? Just all the information they're not getting in school currently. You and I have been speaking for about an hour before we've put the hit the record button, but you actually had a pretty interesting statistic around average pay versus what people are getting in construction in America, which I thought was really interesting. Could you share that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a part of an organization over here called Crew Collaborative, and their whole purpose is, again, just trying to promote the trades and get them in front of more kids. And one of the things that we do is classroom talks where we have a bunch of real tradespeople actively in their job. And we put you on video call with us and we chat about our job and what we do. And I was one of the last speakers of about seven of us that day. And consistently, every person that would talk would kind of go through their profession and then they would say, and I make comfortably over six figures. And after about the fourth or fifth person did that, I went, huh, just out of curiosity, I wonder what the median wage is here in the US. And so I got on the Bureau of Labor and Statistics website, and it turns out the median wage in the US, if I remember right, I might, don't don't totally quote me, but I want to say it was right around $67,000. When I got on, I told the kids, I say, there's this big lie that's being told currently that if you go to college, you're signing up to make the big paycheck. You're going to make more money because you went to college. And the reality is, if the median wage is 67000 or 68000 whatever it is, that means that the majority of people that are all going to college and all supposedly making this huge paycheck aren't making as much as all the people that you've heard from today. And we're all just tradespeople. And none of us were handpicked because we make a lot of money. That's just what we make. What was the people's reaction in the room to that? 
it was funny because you're talking to a bunch of timid high school kids. And so I just flat out asked him, I said, hey, if you're looking at a profession because you want to make a lot of money, raise your hand. And one kid's hand shoots right up. And it's like, <laughs> there's the honest kid. And I said, all right, guys, be honest. Who's actually looking at jobs because you're going to make a lot of money? And of course, like three quarters of the hands go up. And that's where I kind of led into it. And you could definitely kind of see the gears turn in a lot of eyes as you scrolled the room there after I dropped that statistic on them. Because I didn't even know that. I think there's a lot of us that don't know that statistic that we're making really good money in the trades. Yeah, well, as you were talking, I started doing a little bit of research to make sure that this was relevant to people in Australia. And according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the median salary in Australia as of August 2022 was 65 grand. And I can tell you right now that I don't know anybody working in our industry that is on anything less than $90,000. Accumulating it. things like your overtime, all of that extra stuff, that's going to be what you're on. You're going to be over the median salary. So if nothing else, and you shouldn't just go into something because of money, you've got to love what you do. And I think most of the people in our industry really do love what we do. But just back in your statistic there. And what I always say is, we're going to work you for that money. The trades are a hard profession. It's physically demanding. You're going to work a lot of hours. But the flip side of that is you make a lot of money. I was working for a union company here in the US. I was working about six months out of the year because I'm in a northern climate. So we shut down during the winter months. I was working about six to seven months out of the year and I was making $85,000 in six months. And then I would sit at home the rest of the year and enjoy my family. Meanwhile, you have all these people that are commuting back and forth to work every day and they're making less than that, maybe equivalent to what I am. So to give everybody a little bit of context, I wanted to get you on the show because like I was saying to you before, we recently had Conag Expo over there in Vegas. I wasn't able to go because I couldn't convince the wife into letting me go and leave with two kids behind and all the rest of it. So I had to stay home. My old man went over there and had an absolute ball. And I know there's other people that are listening to this that probably couldn't get there. So I wanted to have somebody on the show that's been, spent some time there to come on and tell us all the things that we missed and make us really jealous. So you're catching me at the perfect time because I didn't even tell you this before we started. This was my first con expo, believe it or not. I had never been expo before and I went on behalf of Chevron. I have Chevron as a sponsor on diesel and iron. And so we were doing live broadcasts from their booth and it was kind of one of those things. Well, my God, if I'm going to go, you have to give me time to walk the show. And they were very accommodating. It's hard to put into words. It's one of those things that you see all the pictures and you go, wow, that's really big. But when you're there holy crap, this is a huge show. So Mm -hmm. we walked from one end of the show to the other end of the show one day, and it took us an hour walking straight through the show to get from one side to the other. And that was not detouring and looking through a bunch of booths. It was literally walking straight through and glancing at things as we did. And it was an hour. It was just incredible. My old man was telling me that him and a, and a couple of the other blokes that he went with, one of them was wearing an Apple Watch and they, in one day, they did something like 30,000 steps. Oh, I believe it. So at the event, I mean, what was some of the gossip getting around the event? Were there any big unveils in terms of machinery? So because I wasn't walking quite so much, I didn't get to see a lot of the press stuff. I know John Deere came out with 40 something new models. They've got the new X tier that they released and they've got a bunch of stuff. Autonomous Machines was a big one. I know Doosan or Devilon or whatever they've rebranded themselves now. They had an autonomous excavator there and an autonomous dozer doing some things. You had companies like Telio and Built Robotics. Both of them had autonomous machines out there that were running. So the biggest takeaway that I had from ConExpo was just how much the industry is finally being impacted by technology. We're all familiar. We've been so resistant to change. 
technology is this big, bad, scary thing. Give us our everything manual engine so we can hit it with a hammer and it'll start running again. We don't want computers. And now that the industry started to embrace technology, it's like someone just pushed the accelerator to the floor. Like I said, we've got all of the autonomous machines. That's by itself just pretty incredible. And then one of the biggest ones for me was the alternative fuel conversation. I don't know what it's like on your side of the world, but here in the U.S., electric equipment is being jammed down our throats and the industry does not want it, but the manufacturers are jamming it down our throats. Okay. So there was electric technology there. But what was really interesting is Cummins just released a 15 liter, they call it a fuel agnostic engine. So it can run diesel or HVO, which is hydrogenated vegetable oil, I believe is what they called it. Basically biodiesel, a little different. You switch the head, the lower end of the engine stays the same. You just switch out the head and now you can run that engine on compressed natural gas. If you switch it to another head, you can run it on hydrogen. And so- That by itself was kind of cool, but we started talking with the people from Cummins and it turns out compressed natural gas is used in a ton of municipal applications currently in large trucks, in large applications like we would be looking at in the dirt industry. And so a lot of the infrastructure is actually in place. A lot of the scariness of this new engine technology has already been proven. It's Mm. just now the engine technology is finally getting to the point where it's outputting pretty close to the same of what a diesel equivalent is outputting. And so that was a real eye opener to me because I've kind of been in this mindset that we're not going to see the alternative fuels for probably another decade. The reality is it wouldn't shock me if we start seeing compressed natural gas on our job sites here in the U.S. within the next five years, maybe. I mean, it's a lot closer than I thought it was. So the compressed natural gas side of things, are we pushing that? Because obviously you've got the electric side of things that you're talking about. Is the compressed natural gas meant to be better or the same? Or like, how is that compared against electric? I had the same question. So everyone kind of recognizes the dirt industry is not going to adapt well to the electric equipment market. Because first of all, I don't know, again, differences between Australia and the US. The US power grid is not anywhere remotely close to being equipped to handle the grid load from all of dirt contractors switching over to having to charge their equipment. So there's hurdle number one. Hurdle number two is we build the infrastructure half of the time that's going in place to get things to the location where we're working. So how are we supposed to charge all of this magical electrical equipment if the grid hasn't even been installed out on our job site? And so it's not really practical. And so the way the industry is viewing it is these are kind of these middle holdover technologies that until the grid can get to a point where it can sustain the kind of in the city sort of stuff, we can use compressed natural gas. And then for the foreseeable future on all of these remote job sites where you don't have access to electricity, compressed natural gas machines can continue to run. The question I have around all the electric side of things is I worry how much of it is they're pushing it because it's what's hot. We're going green, we're going all the rest of it. But is it actually the best application for what we need? Because at the end of the day, if we're trying to get electric cars on the road and get electric machines going, we're doing it for environmental concerns. But the amount of mining of the copper, the mining of all of that shit to actually make those machines, we're not saving that, are we? Right. I try to be practical when I think about this stuff. I feel like so much of the industry just knee jerks, you know, oh, we don't we don't want to get rid of our diesel engines and they kind of leave it at that. Yeah. And I try to be practical about it. And I look at it from the standpoint of I'm in the process of building a house right now and we want to have the new F-150 Lightning. We want to be able to charge the F-150 Lightning at the house. 
But I also realized that I kind of want to future-proof the house that my wife is maybe going to get an electric car one day, and then maybe one of my kids might want an electric car, or by the time they're driving, EVs may kind of be the standard. And so I told the power company, I want to have three of these EV chargers on the house. That has been a huge education for me because it has turned into this huge ordeal with the power company where they're talking, we're going to have to actually have two meters because if we go any higher on the voltage coming off of the line, it's going to be into industrial levels of electricity to where I've got to have an engineer drawing for what's going to go in the building and I've got to have a lockout tag out procedure. I mean, it's like, yeah, well, really for three EV chargers on top of your regular electrical load, we're into industrial supply. Yeah. And, so you can and imagine that for a civil contractor. Well, 100% because I go at the end of the day, that's to move an 18,000 pound vehicle down a very smooth paved road with almost no payload on it. And now you're going to somehow tell me we're going to go electrify a 90 ton excavator that has to track itself across ridiculously hilly terrain and move tons and tons of material at a time. You're not even in the same ballpark. Like you might as well Mm. be on the moon right now with this idea. There's no way you're going to be able to handle that load. It's not practical. And I do feel like the industry has kind of created this we're going to create an electric machine and everyone, this is the future. We all have to do it. And so now the Mm -hmm. industry is kind of chasing its own tail on the electric side while the actual industry, the actual contracting industry is going, guys, we need products that work today. And this stuff is still 20 years away. Like you're not Mm -hmm. even talking in our world right now. And again, just to reiterate your point, neither of us know anything much about the electric side of things and all of that. So just, yeah, we're just two guys talking shit here. So don't don't take it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is not the gospel by any means. I will say in my mind, in order for the whole electrical equipment to be viable, we're going to have to have two major things happen. We're going to have to have a huge, huge evolution in battery technology. And then we're going to have to have a huge infrastructure investment to get the grid up to where it can support that demand. But then you also have to think if you're really going to increase electrical demand by that degree, you don't have a choice but to start talking about nuclear plants. I mean, you're going to have to have some major power output to create that amount of electricity to start fueling iron. It's not the same as electric vehicles and electric vehicles is already going to just destroy our grid. Hey guys, Jordan here, and I want to ask you a question. Is your company actually attractive to potential employees? Because if not, you're making attracting and retaining talent even harder than it already is. See, every year, job seekers are behaving more and more like consumers, and they're now using the sophisticated methods that we all use when researching new products and services online to evaluate employers. And if a company wants to consistently attract top quality people to their company, then they need to actively manage their brand as an employer and show people why working for them is a great choice. It sounds simple, but it's not easy. That's why I created our employer brand scorecard, a free resource to help business owners in the construction industry gain an understanding of how attractive their company is in the job market. Simply answer 16 yes or no questions about your business's recruitment activities, and then once you're finished, your answers will get pumped through an algorithm to produce your final score. Then, 
Based on your answers, you'll receive a tailored report full of practical ways that you can make your company more attractive to potential employees. So if you want to check that out, head to moonshotmedia.com.au forward slash scorecard or look for a link wherever you're listening to this. It only takes five minutes and it's completely free. With that said, I want to thank you again for tuning in and I'll let you get back to this week's episode. What else were some of the big takeaways from the event? Big takeaways is there's so many aspects of the industry that are changing. And and when I say technology, it's not even necessarily just like the technology that's going on the machines. One of the things that we saw is they're using drone technology and scaling it up. There was a company that was selling a product It was essentially a load controller for a crane, and it was so they could do picks in winds that were higher than 21 miles an hour. It would have taken into account the direction it was getting hit from from the wind, and then the drone motors would adjust to keep the load from swaying on the crane. It is so many facets of our industry that are being changed by technology, and it's changing the way we as operators think. It's changing the way we as companies do business. You're getting a ton of software that's coming out now that interfaces with drones. Drones are starting to become very prevalent. I don't know how it is in Australia, but here in the U.S., very prevalent. Even for the small guys, the technology is not just for the big guys. The smaller guys can get in on doing takeoffs by doing drone flyovers. And then you ship the files off, have them interpreted. And now all of a sudden you have your cut fill volumes and you can see what happened over the course of the last week on the job site. It's every facet of the industry. One exhibit that I wanted to go and have a look at is everybody that's been listening to this will know I use Rubble Master Crushers quite a bit when I was still in charge of the quarries and all that sort of stuff. Did you get a chance to have a look at the Rubble Master exhibit, anything, or the case exhibit? Everybody knows I'm a case fan. Yeah, so I didn't get to look at the Crusher exhibits too much just because that's not really our industry, what I'm involved in. I'd love to play with one, but I couldn't tell you this one's better than the next. The case exhibit was off the charts. Like I was thinking case was going to have kind of a case sort of show. It was not that way at all. They brought the full freaking fleet. It was very impressive. I want to say they had two Minotaurs there, maybe even three. I can't remember. It's kind of walking around. Yeah. I don't think many expenses were spared on the case exhibit this year because I know that they did a big event in a bowling alley that my old man went to that he said there was over 2,000 people there and it was off the charts. Like quite a well-known country singer was there as well, which he had no clue about, which we wouldn't over here. But yeah, I think it was a, it was a big deal. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, like you said, there were over 2,000 people there. I had a couple people that I knew in the industry that went to the event and they said it was just crazy. The scale of it, the excitement. Like Case is really pushing themselves out. For the first time, I feel like Case is really stepping into the light and going, okay, we're here to play. Like We're not here to pick up the industry's crumbs, which I feel like for a long time, that's kind of been their niche is all of the small contractors that aren't really worth Caterpillar's time. As a salesperson for Case, that was my bread and butter were the owner operators. And I feel like for the first time, Case is really kind of putting themselves out there in the main spotlight and going, we're here and we got some real legit equipment and we're ready to play on the big jobs. So now for it to go the next level, the dealerships have to step up and support that next level playing field. Yeah. So we in South Australia deal with SA tractors and they're great. 
in terms of their after-sale support and good group of blokes there at SA Tractors. We've dealt with them for a long time. Is that something in the US that they may be not that crash hot on yet? Or There's kind of the case ag side with all of their traditional agriculture tractors, and they've got a great reputation. Unfortunately, over on the construction side, you still are dealing with a lot of smaller dealerships that don't necessarily offer up things like 24-7 tech support. If you got a machine that goes down and you're a busy, big paving crew, you got to have someone there at two o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. There's no getting around it. And if all of your competitors are offering that service, well, by default, you're going to go buy their equipment because you have to have that support on the backside of the sale. And so I think that's where the next step that Case is going to have to face here in the U.S. is they're going to have to shore up those dealerships. If you want the big players to buy your equipment, you've got to support the big players on that purchase. I hope they do. I hope they step up whatever game they need to because they are a bloody good machine. I'm 100% with you. Other than Case obviously being a bit of the talk of the town at the event, Like I suppose one other thing that I've seen from afar was the cat had their operator challenge. And I think a bloke from CRE group in Melbourne actually won that, which was big up for Australia. Yeah. So that was actually pretty cool because we competed in the cat challenge here at home in the first round. And so it was cool to see the culmination of that event at the actual show. And while I didn't get to be there and see it in person, they were live broadcasting the cat challenge there. And cat's booth was incredible. In fact, I'm just going to say that whole lot, that was the festival lot, was incredible because you had Cat, Cabelco was right around the corner and Cabelco had their full excavator spread and their crane spread right next door to it. Devlon was right there (laughs) with their autonomous machines and all of these guys went all out with the booths. I mean, Cabelco had their setup like an old West set on a Western movie. And everyone from Cabelco's wearing cowboy boots and your Stetsons and big old cowboy hats. And that was really cool. You had Link Belt right around the corner. That whole lot was just crazy. And Cat's display was, I mean, they brought in for the operator challenge. Like you walk around the corner and there is a whole football field that is elevated about four feet above the parking lot that they had built specifically for the challenge. I mean, that's the thing that's really hard to kind of grasp until you're actually there is the logistics that go into just setting up the show. Like take all of the other stuff out of it, just setting up the show. You're just like, holy shit, this is crazy. It's crazy they spent this kind of money. So my old man went to Baumer a couple of years ago, not the very last Baumer, but the one before that. And he was talking to somebody there that had set up a batching plant of some description. And I think they said that just to set it up for the three-day event or four-day event was something like 10 mil to set up their stand and kind of blew my mind. But then when you spoke about how much the equipment was that they were selling and it made sense. And at some of these events, these manufacturers can shift some serious dollars worth of gear. It's incredible walking around because a lot of the stuff that you see has sold signs on it and it's legit. They actually sell the products there. I won't say who, but I know for a fact that one of the manufacturers spent over 5 million just in the booth. And it's a 100% worth it when you really start thinking about the price tags on this equipment and when they can move the volume that they can, it's worth it, but it boggles your mind when you really start looking around and seeing what they got set up. Oh, I totally forgot. Here we are talking about all the cool stuff. They have a telehandler there that the track is as tall as I am. Just one of the tracks on this thing is as tall as I am. I want to say it can lift 15,000 pounds at a hundred foot reach and it's used for skyscraper construction and 670 horsepower Cummins diesel is on this thing. That's what's powering it. 
It's unbelievable. <laughs> wow. And see, that's what I love about this industry It's I've always loved gear. Like I'm useless at telling you like the model names and what size they are, but like looking at a nicely engineered piece of gear. Oh, it's awesome. I always loved a Rubble Master because I've worked on some absolute pigs of crushes that are hard to work on. And Rubble yep. Master was just like a really, really nicely engineered piece of gear. And that's why I, I want to go to one of these things. So I think the next one that I'm actually probably going to be able to go to is I think Bauma's the next one, but that's every second year. Maybe? I think it's every two years and Con yeah. Expo's every three. So you do that weird juggle thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you maybe think might've been worthwhile knowing for the people that couldn't make the event? Just go. I mean, that's the biggest thing <laughs> is just go. I will tell you one of the interesting takes for me was you kind of go because it's the show and you want to see, like you say, you want to see all the gear, you want to see all the cool machines. And that's awesome. Don't get me wrong. It will 100% deliver on that promise. But what was really interesting to me is the amount of networking that happens there. The amount of people that I came across that I had either known online or had maybe come across way back, but now you're in person and you're able to network and you're able to network within their circles and you start making connections that going as a contractor, I could only imagine the connections that you can make and where it can take your business. Because me being a content creator was next level. It was off the charts. The number of people that I came into contact with and was able to network with, I've got so many appointments coming up over the next couple of weeks, just following up on conversations that happen at Con Expo. So if you ever get the opportunity to go, it's expensive. It is 100% worth it. So just on that topic to get a ticket, it's expensive. Like what can people expect? So tickets by themselves aren't that bad. So I want to say the ticket to get in was like right around 220, 250 bucks. It wasn't terrible. Mm -hmm. But where it's going to get you, especially you, is because you got to fly. And then it's Vegas. At the end of the day, Vegas is expensive. You're going to pay 20 bucks for any meal you do, whether it's a little, I mean, Denny's. We didn't get out of Denny's. I want to say it cost two of us 50 bucks to eat at Denny's. Everything is just (laughs) ridiculously expensive in Vegas. So you're going to spend some coin. Yeah, my old man reckoned it was like 20 bucks for a beer, but he might have been talking about the conversion rate between Australian dollars and US dollars, and that's kind of what it equated to. I bet a beer was easily 12 American dollars. Nothing's cheap there. And us Australians like a beer or 10. So, you know, that's an easy way to spend a few hundred bucks. Oh, 100%. Save some space on the credit card before you go. Make sure you got a little cushion. And then you're all right. (laughs) I really appreciate you coming on, having a chat about it. I think we could keep talking shit for hours. Oh, absolutely. But where can people reach out if they want to reach out, learn more about what you guys are up to and just get in on the other podcasts you've got? Where can people go? Yeah. So we've got the Diesel and Iron channel on YouTube. It is just Diesel and Iron. If you search us, we'll pop right up. If you want to look on any of your podcasting platforms, we've got Sweat and Grime, and then we have the Blue Color Narrative. You can search those. We should pop right up on those. And if you want to get a hold of us, we've got Instagrams for both Diesel and Iron and Sweat and Grime. You're more than welcome to reach out. I'd be happy to chat with you. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, thanks very much. And I think we'll probably have to get you on for another episode at some point because the conversation that we had before we hit record was all, all around the industry and how we attract more. Because it sounds like you guys over there are having a really similar issue to what we're having there with problems with culture, with not attracting enough young people to make up for the amount of older people that are rapidly kind of moving towards retirement. So I think it'd be really interesting to compare notes, see how things differ on another episode, maybe. Oh, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. You let me know. <laughs> right, mate. Well, you have a good rest of your day or, or evening. I'll speak to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, Jordan. You've been listening to the Crushing It in Construction podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. 
and it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review. If you'd like to learn more about employer branding and recruitment marketing strategy, feel free to visit our website at moonshotmedia.com.au or reach out to me directly at jaskinner at moonshotmedia.com.au. Thanks again for listening and I'll speak to you in the next episode of Crushing It in Construction.